We're going to read uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 to 20 in its entirety so we can hear what God's saying in the whole passage. And we're going to talk about it. So 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 to 20. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom in glory. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they also heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Today we're going to begin to talk about a theme in First and Second Thessalonians, uh, which is very, very apparent, very, very present, and turns out is a very pervasive theme throughout the scriptures. We're going to talk about Christ's second coming and his, his currently arrived kingdom as a basis, as a motivation for living in the here and now. After doing some, some research on the second coming of Christ and talk about Christ's kingdom, references to the second coming outnumber the references to the first coming by a factor of eight to one. There's more, much more talk about the second coming than there is about the first coming of Christ. Scholars have identified 1,845 biblical references to the second coming of Christ. In the Old Testament, no less than 17 books talk about the second coming of Christ. In the New Testament... Authors speak of the second coming of Christ in 23 out of the 27 books. Seven out of ten New Testament chapters mention Jesus' return. One out of every 30 verses, by some estimations, in the New Testament teaches us that Christ is coming back to earth. Some people have come up with even more um, numbers. That, that was actually a, a uh, conservative estimate. Other people have said every, one out of 13 verses in the New Testament, or one out of 23 verses. Regardless, it's a lot. It's mentioned quite a bit. And Jesus, who, if people kind of like don't really think the Bible is that, is, uh, that reliable or whatever, they, they often say, well, but Jesus, we're okay with the teachings of Christ. We believe them. The rest of the Bible, we were not so sure about. Jesus himself recur, re, referred to his second coming 21 times. This is a theme that you cannot escape from if you're going to be a believer, and it was something that, uh, that Paul lived in, in Silas and Timothy, his companions, who's ministering to Thessalonica with. It was a conviction they lived with that the getting's good. The kingdom has come. It's going to be consummated fully when Christ returns. Let's go. They were, they were not burned out. They were not tired. They were not weary. Even, even after working tirelessly for hours and um, 
working full days and nights and working second and third jobs to support their ministry. They, they did not lose their joy or excitement because they had such a grasp on this topic that the Bible talks so much about, but that we talk so little about. And I'm sorry for that. Maybe we should have talked about it more. Um, but, but, but we can talk about it today. We can get this mindset that Paul had, that, that, that Silas and Timothy had, that Jesus had, into our, our minds and live differently today. Hebrews 9.28 is a really notable passage. It says this, in verse 27 we'll start, Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Because he already bore our sins on the cross, right? You know, all of us, when we die, we will stand before God and our lives will be evaluated. Those of us who have our faith in Jesus Christ, we're saved by his grace. But still, the fruit will be counted. Our lives will have to give an account for how we lived our lives. Even in that gracious, merciful context, we will have to answer to God for how we lived. And, um, you know, we die once, we face God. Uh, and just as sure as that is a reality, Jesus will come a second time. This time not to bear sin, but to reveal salvation to those who are waiting for him. Uh, we are marked for salvation, those of us who know Christ. And someday our salvation will be fully revealed to us when Christ comes back. So the, all, of this, all of this talk about the second coming of Christ uh, that's mentioned so much in the Bible, you know, it kind of appears to me from, from my studies that the return of Christ shouldn't just be, you know, an ancillary motivating factor for us as believers and, and kind of in, invigorating our lives. It's almost as though it should be the focal point and what really primarily motivates us, you know, motivates our love, our service, our, 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 our lives for God is this idea of Jesus's second coming. It should be very primary in our motivation. Um, even if you were to put aside the second coming of Christ for a moment, and this is hard for us humans to do, just consider how short a human life is compared to eternity. I mean, if we're lucky, you know, 70, some people have lived to be 100 years or more, but no one more than that, and um, no one much more than that. Our lives are very short. This is kind of the time to get well. The getting's good. Jesus said it this way, the fields are white unto harvest. The laborers are few. Jesus said that in a highly persecuted and difficult time. He looked out and saw, oh, there's so much work to be done, so much fruit to be gathered for the kingdom. Um, where are all the laborers? Why is no one motivated in this way? Well, Paul was, and his people were, and the early church was, and we can be as well. So, Jesus' the second coming, our, 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 you know, we don't know how long we're going to live as individuals, we, and, and even if we were to live very long, it wouldn't be very long in light of eternity. What are we spending our days on? If the voice is saying, I'm coming back, if the voice is saying, your life is short, invest it wisely, do well with it. I think it would be good for us to, sh to share this mindset of the biblical writers. It seems like Paul, Silas, and Timothy, who were kind of all talking in this letter to us, worked, worked a 25-hour day um, just to please God because they believed Christ could come back at any moment, and they knew that their lives were constantly in danger um, in the hostile territory they were in. If you listen to more than just Paul's words, you can catch this urgency and see just how much energy he drew from this idea of Christ's second coming and, and the shortness and, and fleetingness of life. It's almost as if that hypothetical situation on the tip of the pandemic, you just say, I need to get all this stuff while it's still here, right? 
or if in the early 80s you bought this Apple stock, we need to get, scoop this up while it's still here. And then later on you receive a reward for your investment. And that's what it's like. Get well, the getting's good, is what Paul says. So with that in mind, I'd like to go through this passage verse by verse and talk about, uh, draw out some of the things that um, came from this heart motivation that Paul, Silas, and Timothy had, that the early church had. So 1 Thessalonians 2, we'll start with verse 11 and 12. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Even in that verse 12, you see that talk of the kingdom and the glory. Let's talk about the present kingdom and the future glory. So Paul, even in this one sentence, is talking about the end, or that's the second coming, or, or the one will stand before God. And it says here that Paul encourages them, that Paul comforts them. That word actually, is, a better translation would be persuaded them. He tried to persuade them. And Paul urged them to live lives worthy of God because God has called them to participate in his kingdom and his glory. The present reality of his kingdom, exercised on earth, holiness, joy, peace, and the Holy Ghost, all, all the fruit you can, you can grow and harvest and, and, uh, and give to God, anything you can do, God calls us to participate in his kingdom and his glory. Someday, God's purposes will be fulfilled through human vessels. God is going to fulfill his purposes through, through people. That's his desire. It's always been his, his desire. And so Paul, with this in mind, he encourages them, he, he comforts them, he persuades them, and he urges them to live lives worthy of God, who calls them into his kingdom and glory. The, the idea is that these people would walk in a certain kind of way. Paul is telling them, walk in a certain kind of way. This, this work um, is a translation of live lives, and, it, and the word is peripateo, which means to walk. So it's kind of like a physical thing you do. Paul is encouraging them, trying to persuade them, urging them to, with the things they do, to walk in a certain way as people traveling into Jesus' kingdom, in the, in the here and now, and into glory, in the fulfilled kingdom. Walk in a certain way. Get well, the getting's good. Paul was trying to induce these people towards love and good works because he felt the urgency of Jesus' soon coming, his present kingdom, and his second coming pressing down on him. And he says, you guys need to start living with, 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 with a habit of conduct in daily life and what you do in a way where every decision, large and small, is motivated by Jesus' kingdom and the future glory that's coming. Paul was, not, was clearly not satisfied by simply making some converts in Thessalonica. Timothy and Silas, along with Paul, were not satisfied with that idea. They had, they had won these largely non-Jewish people in Thessalonica to, to faith in Christ. And, um, and they'd been with them for just three months, and they had just poured teaching and ministry into them, and then got ripped away by the authorities. And Paul's concern in this letter is clearly not just that they're, they're Christians, but that they are walking in a certain way. And so Paul exhorts them, encourages them, persuades them, and urges them in great love, great personal, passionate, heartfelt love to walk in the ma manner of worthy for a kingdom person. There's nothing really lax at all about Paul's approach to, to ministry for himself or for others. He saw no difference between himself and other people and what they needed to do. 
Paul is saying, be an, continue being an overcomer. Continue to follow um, in the way of Christ, in the kingdom of Christ, in the difficult circumstances, because you're living for the kingdom and the glory in the here and now. And you worship a Savior who's active in the here and now, who's coming back. Definitely coming back. And, and you know, some would say, well, it's been quite a long time since Christ left the earth. You know, it seems like he's a long time in coming, some people would say. Well, Jesus addressed that in Matthew 24. He said, some people will say he's a long time in coming, and they'll, they'll kind of just take their foot off the gas and kind of like drift off. And at the end, they're going to be locked out of the kingdom because, locked out in the cold because they just, the human nature is to slide into this mediocrity. He has, he's, he's not, dad's not around, so let's just do what we want. Jesus says, you know, that's going to be a trap that people fall into uh, when, they, when they realize it's taking longer than they thought for him to come back. But whether you die of natural causes, whether you, whether however long your life is, however long till Jesus comes back, we should never say it's like he's a long time in coming. Uh, we should live like Paul said, urging, encouraging, persuading one another to keep on moving because God is doing a work on this earth. He needs us. You know, that sounds like a controversial thing to say. He does strongly desires and uses people to fulfill that work. That's how he's chosen to work in the earth is through people. I and mean, we are those people. We're kingdom people. And he's coming back. Paul is saying uh, to these people that they, were, they weren't just saved to be converts. They weren't saved just to be Christians in name. But they were saved for a certain destiny, a certain end. And that is what kingdom and glory is all about. You know, people were saved to walk a path into Christ's kingdom and then into his glory and being glorified with Christ. This is the destiny of the person who comes to Jesus. Paul doesn't want people to fall short of that. Paul call, uh, calls us in Hebrews 3.14 to be partakers in Jesus Christ. Partakers. Romans 14, 7, 17 and 18 comes to mind. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval as well. So, you know, Paul is pushing hard. He's encouraging, comforting, urging, persuading people to live for their destiny. Their destiny is glory. You're saved by faith, by grace. Now work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act. That's what Paul's saying. Don't take it for granted. Get while the getting's good. The fields are white. Get out there and start planting seeds, harvesting beautiful things for God out of love and passion for him and his kingdom. Paul is saying, you know, you are a partaker in Christ. Walk worthy of Jesus as the king calls you and beckons you deeper into his mind and into his heart. And the way that the Bible works is, you know, when you take what you know, say you don't know very much, take what you know and do something with it, obey it. And then the Father gives you more. That's how it works. It's stewardship. God gives you some and then you, he sees what you do with it. And then if he sees you're faithful with a little, he'll give you more. And that's how it works. Constantly us responding to God we must encourage, like Paul, and allow, allow Paul to encourage us, to persuade us, to urge us to live a life worthy of the calling we have in Christ, the high calling, um, because he's coming back, because he's presently active. These are important things. Moving on to verse 13. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God which is indeed at work in you who believe. So what's Paul teaching here in, in verse 13? Well, he's teaching our fifth core value at New Life Fellowship. Somehow he, he got an advanced copy of our core values, and he's teaching this idea 
that knowing and obeying the Word of God is fundamental to all true success. That's what he's saying. Remember, our core values, lost people matter to God. He wants them found. Prayer is the primary work of the people of God. Everything belongs to God. We are only caretakers. Knowing and obeying God's Word is fundamental to all true success. Fulfilling the Great Commission will require the mobilization of every committed disciple of Jesus. Without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we can accomplish nothing. And faith-filled risks are the only way to get from where we are to where God is calling us and where he wants us to be. The fifth of those is the Word of God. Paul thanks God because these people, when they heard the Word from Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they didn't consider it to be Paul's preaching. They considered it to be the Word of God for them. This is a good thing because Paul and Silas and Timothy were only there for three months. It's, uh, it would have been terrible if the people had become dependent on Paul, Silas, and Timothy for the Word, the ministry of the Word. But these people, Paul, Paul gives them give thanks for them because they realized the Word was bigger than these three probably very proficient and convincing preachers. God's Word was living and active and able to minister to people apart from these preachers. And that's why it's not... It's not this uh, hopeless tragedy when a pastor leaves the church and moves on to some other ministry because the Word of God is still in that church. The Word of God is living and active. This church has had one, two, three, uh, I think I'm the fourth pastor of this church and uh, over the last 20-something years, and the Word of God has not left this church once. We may have been sad as a leader has left and another has come in their place. But we've never uh, lost the Word of God. It's always been with us, teaching us, and guiding us into truth. And I want to challenge you, New Life Fellowship, however you receive the Word of God, found in the Old and the New Testament, to receive it as if it's God's actual Word to you, because in a mysterious and a wondrous way, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. God's Word found in the Old and New Testaments, as much as some of it perplexes you and perplexes me, and as much as we cannot fully understand all of it, though much of it is very clear, and we'd rather not admit that, I guess, sometimes. God's word is powerful and needs to be taken more seriously. Listen to how Paul commends these people. He was proud to see this three-month-old church receive the message that the word is not contingent on a preacher. It's powerful, living, and active on its own. And that when a church gathers together, they don't behold a preacher. They behold the word of God and the ministry of God by the word. So Paul taught them for three months. He left, and there was, no, there was no problem, no interim pastor needed. Just a letter after nine months of being away because the word of God continued. They were fine. Because Paul, God's word remained and the people knew it, Paul knew these people would be fine. The written word in the, in the Old and the New Testaments is, is powerful. It's a very powerful thing. The only reason I preach from the Bible is because I know that the word of God has its own power by the Holy Spirit. No, no matter how inadequate the sermon might be, the word is going to prevail because it is a spiritual weapon of love. That's what the Bible says. The word plus the spirit of God is the only teacher a person needs. Though, many, though other teachers are useful, um, even Jesus said, don't call any man teacher, but the spirit. So as I said, I don't understand everything about the Bible. Some of it is confusing and perplexing to me and to the people that I respect the most who have studied way more than me. I stick with it because it's clearly a living and active and powerful book because God breathed it. When we did our core value of, of uh, knowing and obeying the Word of God, 
we looked at how the, in the original language, the word is, the word of God is inbreathed by God himself. Therefore, it has power. And God inbreathes it again when we read it. And he teaches us as we read it. I heard a quote, and I'm not sure where it came from, but think about this quote. The spirit without the word is a weaponless faith. The word without the spirit is a powerless faith. There's extremes out there. People that are too reliant on their own discernment and, and neglect the word of God, the written word of God. And there's people that are preoccupied with the words and the original language and syntax and meaning that they neglect the spirit and they neglect obedience. Um, the spirit without the word is a weaponless faith. And again, it's a weapon of love, not a weapon of crushing. And you know, I, I hesitate to use the word weapon because I know how it sounds in today's context. It's a weapon of love and power that God has given to us. And, without, and the spirit without the word is a, is a weaponless faith. The word without the spirit is a powerless faith. I think that's true. Let that sink in. Paul is talking, when he's talking to these people and commending them for receiving the word as from God, not just from men, he is talking about the Old Testament. He's saying, you guys, the Old Testament, um, I'm glad that you're looking at that as the word of God. You know, that's a New Testament commendation of the Old Testament, right? So if you want to discard the Old Testament, you can't because even Paul says it's vital. Paul had no idea that his own letter to Thessalonians would become a part of the New Testament. He, did, he probably did not know that. But later in the Bible, Peter, in 2 Peter 3.16, says Paul's letters are part of the Word of God as well. And, and the church, and it, all, it all came together in this amazing way. Think about that. We all thank God because when you received the Word of God and you heard it from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the Word of God which is indeed at work in you who believe. So I honestly don't care how you do it. Get into the Word. This is not a legalistic thing. It's just if you don't get into the Word, you might be a, have the Holy Spirit, but you're going to lack the primary means of, of growing and doing the will of God. Um, get into the Word. Use Mission 119. We went through that as a church. It's a free app that brings you through the Bible with commentary. Use the Bible Gateway app. Use... Um, an audio Bible. Do it early in the morning. Do it late at night. Do it as you're falling asleep. Do it on your lunch break. Get into the Word. No matter how much you uh, have loved or, or not loved the Bible in the past, get into it. Just read it. Um, because God will do great things as we read, understand, obey the Word of God and the power of the Spirit. And why should we, we be motivated to do this? To know and do the will of God? Because life is short and Jesus is coming back. In other words, you, you either have a day or you have decades, but whatever it is, get in the Word and um, see what the Spirit does. Obey what you know it says, and God will give you more. That's how it works, stewardship. The Spirit without the Word is a weaponless faith. The Word without the Spirit is a powerless faith. The next section is, is a difficult section we're going to go through. It's uh, verses 14 through Verse 16. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them. At last. 
there's no doubt about it. You know, these are harsh words that Paul is pointing towards a race of people, the Jews, God's chosen people. You have to remember, Paul was himself a Jew, as was Jesus Christ. So it was an insider talking about his own people and, and offering a critique of them. And these are not Paul's final words about the Jewish people. Uh, to understand Paul's more the full theology of the, of the Jewish people, uh, read Romans 9 to 11. You can understand a little bit more of where the, the, the hope that is, is for these people. But Paul writes um, words in this passage today that have been misused historically to actually promote anti-Semitism. Believe it or not, sinful humans got the word of God and twisted it and used it, used the very word of God to promote something that is abhorrent to the heart of God, which is racism. This, this, is, this, is, this is what some have used these scriptures to promote. And the ironic thing is, that is this sin of the Jews that Paul talks about in here, is actually, he's talking about the problem with the Jews being racist towards Gentiles in this passage. He's critiquing, he's critiquing not the Jewish people per se, but he's critiquing racism. You know, in here, he's saying the Jews are not wanting Gentiles to come to faith because they, they do not want people that are not full-blooded Jewish people to come into the Jewish, uh, the, the Jewish culture, the Jewish world. And, uh, you know, when, when we studied the book of Acts a few years ago, I was absolutely... Um, floored by how much of the book of Acts is actually about race. It's actually about, about the dominant uh, religious culture there rejecting the, the Gentiles who were coming to Christ because they weren't Jewish by blood, and so trying to get them to be circumcised, to do all these different things, whereas Paul is saying you don't need to do those things. Just come through Christ, and you're, you're, you're grafted in. So in, in this time, in this, in this period of church history, you know, the Jewish people were persecuting the Christians, Gentiles, for um, coming into the faith because they didn't want non-Jewish people to be part of the people of God. So Jewish people were being bigoted towards non-Jews, becoming included in the people of God, even though God's intention from the beginning was to use the Jewish people to be a blessing to all nations. That was God's intention from the beginning of the Bible forward. But the Jewish people had lost sight of this. And Paul isn't critiquing, of course, the Jewish people, because he's racist towards them, as the scripture has been used in history. After all, Paul and Jesus are Jewish. Paul's critiquing the Jewish people, his own people, because they were showing hostility towards the Christians because they didn't want the Gentiles to be included in God's people so easily. And Paul says, they displease God, the Jewish people, and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so they may be saved. It's absolutely an issue of race. In my opinion, after, after taking a really quick survey of world history, since the time of the writing of the Bible, the Jewish people could now write this passage and address it to supposed Christians who have lived in history. Christians who persecuted Jews in the Crusades, unbelievable carnage in the name of Christ by supposed Christ followers who were themselves bigoted and racist towards the Jewish people. Anti-Semitic sentiment in all of Christian Europe led the Nazis who turned around and persecuted and murdered Jewish people just due to their race. You know, what Paul writes here, though he is speaking of Jewish people killing Jesus and persecuting and killing Christians, could have been written towards Christians for a large part of human history, towards the Jewish people. People who were supposedly Christian were responsible for the Crusades, were responsible, again, for, for in Nazi Germany. The Bible was used in this way. 
and also used to justify genocide in Bosnia and Herzegovina in the 90s. The sin of racism is, in, is on all of our hands, unfortunately. It's not a Jewish problem. It's not a Gentile problem. It's a human problem. And we have to humble ourselves and repent of this historic sin of all people, including Christians towards other people who have participated in it and even justified it using their own scriptures. We have to repent of racism. That's what the book of Acts is all about. People receiving people that aren't from their race into, their, into the family of God. That was what the book of Acts was all about, and that's what this is all about, on the difficulty that was being had. So we have to, we have to come face to face with this ugly sin. We must not turn a blind eye to issues of race in our world today. We must humble ourselves. We must repent and purge our hearts of our deeply ingrained racism. Um, and we must repent. We must wash our hands. We must cleanse our eyes. It's not a joke. It's not a punchline. It's not a social media post that we make declaring our, um, our opinion. This is a sin that we need to deal with in our own hearts, racism. And Paul says here that God's wrath is expressed when the sins of any people are heaped to the limit. The sin in this passage is the sin of racism, of not allowing Jews, not wanting Gentiles to come into the people of God. And I'm certain of that, and we are all guilty of the sin of the heart in our lives. The sin of our eyes, the sin of our hands, and we need to humble ourselves and repent. We just need to humble ourselves. And once your eyes are open to this sin being a thing in the Bible that's actually talked about openly in the Bible, you can see it everywhere in the scriptures. You can see this problem. Think of the Jews and their hatred for Samaritans. Do you know why Jews would not associate with Samaritans? Because Samaritans were half Jewish, and that wasn't good enough for the, for the Jewish people of Jesus' day. That's why they called, and this is very offensive if you really think about it, they called the Samaritan woman a dog. And she actually referred to herself as a dog. It was a racism problem. Uh, Jews looking down on Samaritans because they weren't fully Jewish in their blood and even calling them animals. In Jesus' time, in our New Testament, there was a disdain from Jews to half-Jewish people, and the same disdain was there for, from Jews towards Gentiles, but even worse, because Jew Gentiles were not kosher, they didn't follow the law, they were reprehensible, and they shouldn't be associated with. The sin in the heart of, of those people in Bible times is racism. It's not a Jewish problem, it's not a Gentile problem, it's a human problem, and um, the Jewish people have suffered from, from racism at the hands of Christians so much in our, in our world history, or supposed Christians. Um, it's just something that we all need to repent of. For me, uh, I'm glad that God has wrath towards racism, aren't you? I went to Berlin, Germany, to the Holocaust Museum, and to the, the monuments are set up to commemorate the lives lost during the Holocaust. I can't even talk about it. I've never seen anything more sobering or horrifying in my life. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Racism has been a problem in our, in our world. Apartheid in Africa, like I said, in, in the 90s in Bosnia-Herzegovina, the Crusades, the slave trade in the United States, and systemic racism that's made its way into everything that we are and everything we do. We, God has an opinion on that. His opinion is wrath towards it. And he says, humble yourself. Don't fall into the sin of your fathers. Don't slough it off on the next generation to deal with, which is what's been happening. We need to deal with it in our own hearts, in our own lives. We need to deal with this sin. And we need to, we need to 
repent and turn to God, who, you know, someday we're going to be in the throne room filled with every tribe and tongue. And I believe that everyone will be distinct with their own culture and language, and somehow we'll all be connected in Christ in such a way that we can understand and worship with a multitude of people who, who are so it's completely different from us culturally and, and, and um, culturally, obviously different from you because I'm not, there is no us. We're all from different cultures even in this church and whoever's watching. But we will be with people that are so different from us with such beautiful expressions and um, what's keeping us from embracing that beauty in our world today and not taking hold of it is the sin of racism and it's our using our humor as a defense mechanism and posting on Facebook instead of dealing with the sin in our hearts. That's the reality. This is what happens when you preach straight through the Bible. You get to just preach whatever it says <laughs> and not, not ignore the parts that sound anti-Semitic, but explain them. Explain them, right? And, and understand that these are relevant. These are relevant to our lives today. Moving on to the final section. Sorry, verse 17. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time in person, not in thought, I feel that way, by the way, about new life. I, you know, we've been orphaned from one another suddenly, right? And we're now thinking about coming back together. But we were orphaned by being separated for a short time in person, not in thought. I also identify with that. Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. As we've noted, every chapter of 1 Thessalonians ends with an allusion to the end times. Jesus' second coming. You know, God coming to judge the world and reveal his salvation to all who are waiting for it. And Paul here, he's expressing his pain and revealing his love for this church that he had founded with his friends Silas and Timothy. That he had stayed with for only three months before causing a commotion and being persecuted and having to leave them for safety reasons and then be blocked from going back. Paul expresses here in this final part of chapter 2 about his ministry to the Thessalonians, about his jo- that they are his joy, that they are his crown, even his glory and hope. And that when he stands face to face with Jesus, these people and the relationships he has with them and the way that they follow Jesus are the crown that will be on his head in the presence of Christ. He considers he is so deeply personally invested in these people, he considers them to be his crown and his very great reward uh, even, even after Christ comes back. What a deep and personal feeling. Again, Paul, you know, after he was not content to make a few converts to Christ. He was passionately energized to save others and see them grow in their faith. And it so consumed him that these people in his mind had become his heavenly reward, his hope, his glory. It says, his crown of rejoicing. He says, you guys, this church we were with for three months, nine months later when I think about you, you are my glory, my crown, my joy. That's the same for me and for Silas and Timothy as well, he says. Can you imagine that? Your earthly ministry and influence and fruit that you make uh, while the making's good here on earth? Um, People, a church, being so invested personally 
so open relationally that you consider them to be your joy and your crown, even your heavenly reward. You know, Paul, Christ's return and the reward that Paul will get in his mind is linked to the fruit he bore and the people he passionately loved. And when you think about um, just, just the level of, of connection that Paul had with these people, you see an encouragement from Paul that, you know, the time is short, Jesus is coming back, who knows how long our lives are going to be. Open your heart to people. Open your heart to people who may even be very different from you. Open your heart and love for people. Commit. Invest. Dig, dig in. Dig in deep. And see what God will do. Get beyond the, the, sel- the small and selfish world that we are told to live in in this culture of me and my, maybe my family and no one else. And open yourself up. Open yourself up to a, to a level of relationship that is shocking to this world where strangers can come into your church fellowship one Sunday and a year later they're like family members. Open yourself up. That's why we're talking about house-to-house fellowship. Open up your house. Um, I, I love to invite people over when the house is messy. I'm sure that Jackie puts up with me and this value um, very kindly. And the, but I love, I love to just have people over when the house is messy so people can be comfortable because no one likes it when you come to a house and it's all clean and you're like, oh, I could never have people over. These people have it all together. But be messy. Invite people to your messy, stinky house around your loud children. Whatever. Invest. Open yourself up. After three months, Paul felt like he was a father separated from his kids. He must have had a really open heart. Our hearts harden so much in our selfishness. We get so we get to be such navel gazers. And um, Paul would say, "Open yourself up." Um, by the time he left. When he thought about them, he thought, these, are my, these guys are my crown and my glory. <laughs> it's, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing thought, isn't it? So Christ's return was the motivator for Paul, Silas, and Timothy. It made them work a 25-hour workday um, in, in the harvest field. They were energized by it. Christ's return made Paul, Silas, and Timothy encourage, persuade, and urge the church to live for God and Jesus to live for the, the, the present kingdom of God partially manifested and to live for the future kingdom of God that we fully revealed someday. His message would, it was, to them was, let's make fruit while we can. We're still alive. We weren't persecuted to death yet. Let's make some fruit. And that's, I think that's what God would say to you today. Just get energized. I'm, I, I try to persuade you, encourage you, and urge you. Be energized. Life is very short. Make some fruit while you can. Um, it's really cool. The fruit you make as a Christian will be your crown and your joy at Christ's second coming. It, brings, it makes God incredibly happy. If you're faithful with a little bit, God will give you more. I mean, there's so much more to live for than just our small lives that we build for ourselves. Number two, Christ's return made Paul, Silas, and Timothy urge the church to, con- to continue to receive the word of God for what it is. Not the words of a, of a good preacher, but the word of God for them. No preacher needed. That's what Paul, Timothy, and Silas were so happy about, that these people were not dependent on them for the word, but got it themselves. Uh, this, is, this is important. It, it doesn't matter. You will be held accountable, not for what you think the word says, but for what it actually says. So you should get into it and find out what it says so you can live your life in light of what God really says and get it right. I mean, that's your responsibility as a Christian to do that. And I think that you will find great fulfillment in that, in that purpose. Number three, Christ's imminent return made Paul reflect on the wrath of God 
towards bigotry and racism and comment that God has wrath stored up for these sins. So we should not participate in them as our fathers and forefathers did. But instead, we should humbly listen, search our hearts, repent of what we can, change, change our own hearts, and uh, in, in turn, work on changing the world we live in. Finally, Christ's return made Paul pour out his heart and open up to real, deep, personal, loving relationships with Christ's body, the church. He did not hold back. He invested and poured out his very life as a drink offering, he said. The picture is of a priest at the altar pouring out a drink offering on the altar. That's how poor, Paul felt like his, he was joyfully pouring out his life. 25-hour work days. He wasn't a workaholic. He just loved, and he was motivated and energized by Jesus. That's the same heart that Christ had, looking at the world and saying, I see a field ripe for harvest. What do you see? No one else could see it. And he prayed that the Father would send more workers. He invested. Paul saw what Jesus saw, that many are invited. In fact, all people are invited to the banquet and the marriage supper of the Lamb, but people are just too busy to come. And they turn down the invitation and they miss out on a life of purpose and fulfillment. This fleeting life we have means something for eternity. How we invest it matters every day. Someday we will all stand before God and the fruit will be evaluated. Um, how we lived our lives will be evaluated. We'll be sa- us as Christians are going to be saved by grace. There's no fear of judgment or condemnation for us. But there is a, a, uh, an evaluation of how we lived our lives, the choices we made, and the fruit we bore. And these things do matter. They're not salvific. They don't put you in peril. You shouldn't fear hell or damnation. But you should be motivated to live for God in a way that pleases him. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And I preach to myself as much as I preach to you. I'll leave you with Hebrews 3, 12 to 15. It says this, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. I'm going to leave you with a blessing. So wherever you are, stand and put your hands out and receive this blessing. I bless you as the people of God, that you would be encouraged, persuaded, and urged to live a life that's meaningful and bears fruit for the present and future King Jesus Christ. That you would receive and seek out God's word for you. That you would not be a weaponless faith or a powerless faith, but you would be a word and spirit Christian who puts into practice what they know and obeys what they hear. That you would be open to humbling yourself, repenting of our generational sins, of bigotry, racism, keeping groups away from each other for superficial reasons that are abhorrent to the heart of God. And that we would change the world for the better in this way, reflecting the future kingdom where every tribe and tongue will be distinct and beautiful, singing to God in glory. And finally, I bless you that you might open your life, open your heart, open yourself, even if it's painful or terrifying or scary, um, whatever, whatever it costs you, that you would open yourself up to real fellowship with the body of Christ, that you would consider them your brothers and sisters, your fathers and mothers and aunts and uncles and children 
and that we would together follow God, um, producing fruit for the kingdom, and not missing out on the beautiful banquet that Jesus has for us, for those who are faithful, for those who persevere. I bless you in the name of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dispersed. Go and be the church.